Hey guys, we're back. Episode 28 of Leading by the Book with Chris and Tim and uh, my trusty 11-year-old golden retriever, Wesson, who got half of a haircut yesterday and now looks like the saddest dog in the world. Only half a haircut, huh? Which half? Well, uh, a little bit. Uh, I'm just kind of averaging this out here. It's not like a firm half. It's part of her the top of her coat has been cut and part of the side. Mm. Oh my gosh, that poor dog. Interesting. So yeah. why didn't you finish? Uh, we got busy last night and then, and then it became uh, time just to get everybody, everybody showered and off to bed. So hoping uh, we find some time for part two because no matter how old the puppy is, she does not need to go out in public looking like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be embarrassing. Oh, it's quite embarrassing. So before we got rolling uh, today, or I should say earlier this morning, I sent you a message and said, hey, uh, any topics um, you want to touch on today? And I, I had a few that I wanted to touch on. And you sent me a laundry list of probably 30 or 40 points, I'm estimating, of things that you have on your mind. And I don't even know where to begin but something we were just chatting about here is oil did we find excess capacity what what's going on with this i don't know it doesn't make any sense to me i mean so you know oil the when you when you're looking at okay for the normal guy right and and we're we're just normal guys but like some people may not understand this when you're looking at uh say yahoo finance and it's telling you, was it last week or the week before when oil, oil went negative? Uh, I think it was the week last before. Week. I think it was last week. Was it? Well, the contract expired uh, uh, April 20th. The May, the May contract expired April 20th. So what happens is what they're showing you is the, uh, the futures contract that's coming up. So that was a May contract. And the futures contract says, okay, uh, we'll, 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 I want to buy oil in in may uh is what it is and let's say i did this back in january uh so i want to buy oil in may uh and i'm going to take delivery of it let's say i'm a trucking company or i'm a whatever say you're uh, an airline say you're an airline yeah so i'm going to buy i'm going to buy i'm going to buy oil so they go in they buy oil well, it's the May contract that Yahoo Finance or whatever whatever index that you're looking at for for oil is buying, and the May contract expired negative. And at one point, it was like I believe it was less. It was it was it was negative forty dollars, which means you pay you paying somebody forty dollars a barrel to take your oil. Uh, and the reason was is because there's the the storage capacity was was. Uh, pretty much exhausted. I think I had read somewhere that that up to seventy percent of the of the the U.S. storage capacity was uh, taken up, and you know there's all all sorts of stories of ships floating offshore and, and all this. So then, you know, the very next day, so then so so that was the May contract. So then you got the June contract behind that. So when we're looking at quote unquote the oil price, we're looking at first the May contract that expires worthless. Then the June the June contract uh, comes up, and that's the one that we're looking at right now. It's been extremely volatile. 
I think the very next day it traded the June contract the day before when, when the May contract expired worthless was like 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. And, and the June contract is the one that we're looking at now. At one point it dropped down to like a dollar 25, dollar 50. I can't remember how low it went. It went really, really low. And then it shot all the way up to, to, um, to where we are today. Uh, that was just oh, yeah, w, just WTI before. crude right now. This is two thirty. Eighteen sixty-five. I just saw it. Uh, yeah, it's up twenty-three percent for the day, which is which is just crazy. So so that's a huge huge delta. And so either there's some kind of speculation going on uh, uh, in it, or somebody found some storage capacity. But we're going to find out over the next, you know almost three weeks when this one expires where they're going to put it maybe storage capacity went up you know i heard i heard demands increasing maybe they're anticipating um you know as the as the u.s starts to open up more or as the world starts to open up um, more after this virus that they'll start using it uh, but there's still so much floating offshore i'm i'm, I'm just really confused this, this is the point where we need to talk about something that we talked about um, in our cult meeting yesterday morning. The difference between investing and speculating. The stuff yes. that we see in the market right now makes no sense. But you know what? It never makes sense. It's just more amplified now. But the Yeah. Well, so I read something last week that was really interesting about, about you know, um, the the USO the largest oil ETF uh, in the uh, in the world I think and the, you know they roll over their they use the futures market uh, actually to 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 produce similar returns to oil well what happened was again the May contract expired worthless the June contract was twenty bucks they had to roll over their contracts right and so there was a point at which uh, over the last uh, 10 days where they rolled over their contract because that's what they do. And there was a, uh, I believe I, I had read there was a 36% premium uh, uh, to their the book value, which means because it, it had fallen so much, which means you're, you're, you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed to lose 36%. <laughs> it's just a bad spot. And so yeah, then then they changed the the composition of their their contracts, so they're diversifying it over several months, which is smart. They they that's that's what they need to do. Otherwise, you get a bunch of hedge fund vampire sucking squid that will front run them. As you alluded to me earlier this week, but this is also one of the reasons why I I am much more inclined to invest in infrastructure rather than the actual product itself. So I'm much more inclined to invest in the oil pipeline than the actual oil. Demand for oil is going to change, but the pipeline is always going to be used. I'm much more inclined to invest in the internet or the internet provider than the actual content itself because demand might change. You know, Netflix is hot right now, but you know what? Whether or not we have a pandemic, people are paying for, for their cable modems. So the thing that that's driving me nuts, though, um, and, and this is contrary to an article I just read this morning, the Wall Street Journal talked about how um, some people actually view that this recovery, if we'll call it that, actually makes sense. You have people like you and me that for the last couple of weeks have been saying, this is lunacy, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but 
the, the journal tries to point out that a lot of the recovery that we're seeing is being driven by companies who, because of this post-COVID world that we're going to be living in, are going to appear to have healthier streams of cash flow. So be that as it may, that still doesn't explain the fact that the cruise lines are up like 40% this week. I, I'll never, right. ever be able to understand. I didn't like cruises before this. <laughs> I mean, bef- the the running joke before this thing was a picture. Okay, do you remember two years ago, there was a cruise ship that was stranded at sea for like two weeks. There was 18 inches of sewage in the hallway, and all these people got off the cruise ship. And these friggin' cruise lines turned around and handed these people a voucher for a discount on their next cruise? <laughs> Are you bloody kidding me? Yeah. It's, so, I mean, it's crazy. But I mean, that's what people do, right? So people say, oh, you know what? Oil's not going to be negative forever. I'm going to buy it. How am I going to buy it? Well, I'll buy it. the easiest way for me to buy it is to buy it through this oil ETF. Well, that oil ETF kind of gets, gets screwed because the way it's structured. So, uh, and and now i mean we could be wrong like maybe maybe 18 dollar oil is 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 reasonable for this month but uh you know i, I don't know I don't, but here's the, it just doesn't make sense but but i think it is it is important to your point that we know i'm speculating or i'm investing and they're fundamentally different, different. fundamentally different. two different things it's it's fine if you think oh, I think this is going to get a bump because of this. Or so for instance, you know, this week, Amazon's been running up like crazy, and then I think on Tuesday, Amazon goes down like fifty, sixty points, and then it kind of stays down. And you know, the whole time we've been told Amazon's going to do so great because of COVID and everybody's staying at home. Prime that has all this demand now, this is great. Amazon reports earnings on Thursday, the market starts dipping it down. Um, for a variety of reasons, I'm sure some people thought, "Oh, well, you know, earnings could never be as good as this this run up here." So that's clearly speculating. Another part of it is uh, probably demand being artificially driven down, so that you can you can play the, the the earnings announcement bump. But whatever it is, that is all all speculation, and it's so important to know what game you're playing because there, the volatility that we see is driven by so many things, and it's not just emotion. But emotion is one of the hardest things to predict, and, and that is why I will never trust myself to be able to to, to to make calls in a speculative nature. That that's why I invest in companies with long term defensible cash flow. I'm probably well, yeah, leaving I mean, money on the table, but I'll never be able to be comfortable enough otherwise. Well, and, and but that's that's exactly right. Like you have to know yourself and your risk tolerance. Because if you're going along speculating, thinking, you know, I'm a cowboy, this is going to go up, and then it starts going against you, you have to know, am I going to stick in this because I have some reason to believe my speculation is accurate, or am I going to get shaken out? Uh, and that's how things get get highly emotional, um, you, you know, when you're investing. And, and frankly, like it's part of the reason I don't I don't really invest all that much in, in public markets. Most of my assets are held in in you know private real estate investments and and things of that sort but nonetheless i, I watch markets to kind of understand what's going on in the economy um you know sometimes the, uh, the markets can be various leading or lagging indicators depending on what you're looking at well you gotta have a plan for it going in you know it's you right. know, mike tyson you know, very famously said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face 
You know, <laughs> we, we all think the stock that we bought is going to go up and up and up until it doesn't. You damn well better have a plan saying, well, I think this stock is worth this. I'm going to let it decline. I maybe even am going to buy into the decline because I think the future cash flows are worth this. But you, you can't get caught in the situation where things starts going down and now you're making foolish decisions that may have tax implications and you know, I'm throwing stuff at the wall hoping that I make the right decision. It, it doesn't work that way. And, and that is why, um, as much as I believe in individual responsibility, I really believe that E-Trade and the things like it have done an incredibly great job of eroding a lot of value from the average everyday working investor. Sure. Well, I mean, that, that brings up one of the things that, that, that I had given you in my list of what's on my mind is, you know, the, the world's changed over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, 40 years, where we've moved from, you know, defined benefit to defined contribution plans. And, uh, you know, essentially, we had this conversation earlier, like, I, I realized very early on in my career, okay, wait, I can specialize in my career in I don't know, some, something, right? Something and spend my entire career specializing in that one thing. Uh, but over time, I have to figure out how to invest because if I don't, then I have to give my money to somebody else and hope they can invest it for me. And, you know, that's where the vampire squids end up coming into, into play, uh, right? The, 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 there's a lot of folks in the financial markets that are, that are living on, your returns, my returns, uh, when, when you invest that way. Um, and so, uh, I choose to do things a little bit different because of that. So that's, that's why I got into really wanting to learn how to invest in specifically real estate because, um, you know, I also had, was of the view, um, you know, similar to rich dad, poor dad, you know, the, the, the rich make money by, borrowing it and investing it in appreciating assets and where we're at right now that's a very dangerous game leverage leverage is a very powerful thing it can work for you and it can work against you yeah it to your point about how how much people get rich off of your investment we were talking about this the other day with mutual funds and i was raised i was actually raised in a family with a lot of people that were uh, wealth managers or stockbrokers, and I was always told how great mutual funds were. And I remember, you know, when I, you know, was like six years old, and you know, I'd get, you know, a couple bucks for my birthday, and they'd make a big thing about me coming to the office and picking out a mutual fund or whatever. That's probably the worst advice I ever could have been given as a kid, because when you look at mutual funds and you look at the fee that's charged, and then the trading fee, and then you factor in inflation. Do you know how well that mutual fund needs to perform just to beat a regular Vanguard index fund? There's no way. There is almost right. no way that could ever happen. Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, if you if you if you look at let's use an extreme example. If you if you look at okay, I'm going to invest $100. The first rule of investing is don't lose money. The second rule of investing is try to make as much as you can. Right. But I invest that hundred dollars and it goes to fifty dollars. I lose fifty percent. If I lose fifty percent, what kind of gain do I need to to get? Well, I now have fifty dollars in order to get back to even, 
I need a 100% return. I need a 100% return. So it's, it's, it's far more uh, uh, profitable to not, not lose, to not lose money on the front end through all these fees. Now, I don't know anybody that charges 50%, but you know, when we were kids, you know, what? Uh, do you remember no load and no load mutual funds? Oh, I do. <laughs> right. So the, the load meant how much was the commission that your financial advisor is charging on the front end. And in some cases it was like 10%, 10% of the, uh, of the mutual fund would get paid in commissions. And then the fund itself has to make up that return uh, in its, you know, over, over its time. And so, you know, you invest your hundred dollars at the wrong time and it goes to $90 uh, just because of the commissions. And then the market starts to rise. You know, maybe the market goes up 10% the first year, you're up to $99. And then you pick the, it's just the wrong timing. You go into recession and the market drops 20%. Which going to a bear market like you, 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 you and now and now you're like oh shoot i don't want to lose all my money so i sell like that's the other thing is <laughs> when you're when your assets are priced immediately uh uh all the time it's it's easy to see that and say it's going down and get emotional and, and, and sell well so there has been a study done on on investment returns and in in the correlation between how frequently the prices of these assets are checked. And in fact, the more you check the asset price, the more, or I should say, the, uh, the further reduced your return is. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, if you, check, if you check the ticker twice as much, then your asset ultimately becomes worth half as much. And I sort of believe it. You know, obviously, it's, you know, Equities are far more liquid than than real estate, but the example given at the time was: imagine if you if you were able to check the price of your home every day, there would probably be a lot more people buying and selling. There'd be a a, a much more significant flurry of activity as a result of that. Well, that's a scary thought with where we're at in in uh, technology, because you've got you know companies like Redfin, companies like Zillow that actually are telling you what your house is worth. That's and so point. is that going to exacerbate a downturn in the future? That could be, it, I mean, that could, that could create more volatility. It, it really could, but it's, it just gets us back to the same thing over and over again, which is why I so much love value investing because you don't need to be the smartest person to do it. You don't need to be the luckiest person to do it. You just need to be able to control yourself to do it. A lot of things well, I can't control, I, so I'd rather just I, worry about what I can. Right. I think things like that create. Um, uh, what am I trying? What am I trying to say? Things like that create like a uh, like an anchor point in your mind. You know what I'm saying? Like this, I would like to buy Amazon, for example, at two thousand. Let's say I like Amazon two thousand. It's twenty four hundred right now. No. Yes, I'm looking at Amazon. It's 2400 right now. Uh, it's actually 2440. I'd like to own Amazon at, at 2000 because I think it's worth it. Well, if it goes to 2000 and I buy it, and then it goes to 1000, if nothing's changed fundamentally, 
I should be saying, I think that is worth 2000. Yeah. I want to buy twice as much. I want to buy more if I can. Yeah. And so it's important to maintain a certain part of liquidity so that you can continue to buy more. And then also a certain part uh, of just an anchoring of what is that worth? Now you need to know when is that value changed? Uh, because that's a, that's a, you know, there could be something fundamental about the company that's changed after you bought it. Sure, but that's that why you need a plan. Exactly. You know, it's exactly. It, I, I wish more people would approach buying stocks the way we approach going to the grocery store. We look at something, we know what we think it's worth. Okay. Well, you know, I, I buy, I buy macaroni and cheese for my kids at the store. It's usually like two ninety nine. When I go to the store and I see, you know, it's two for one or whatever, I stock stock up on it. It's it's the exact same behavior, but mm-hmm. you know, we we get so caught up in all this information that's available to us. So is it a fifty two week high? Well, that's irrelevant. That is irrelevant because the fifty two week high probably has nothing to do with the future. Same thing with charts. Or it's or it's like, oh, you think it's a good stock? Well, you know, it's down from it. Well, it's it's all relative and. And the past is not necessarily, uh, and very rarely, is indicative of the future, which is why you have to have a grasp of the fundamentals of the company, and you have to have an idea of what it is worth to you. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're going to operate in a market like that, you can't control. Now, I prefer, you know, businesses and and you know, real estate, where I know I can buy this thing. In fact, this is why I I. Uh, invest originally began investing in in apartments because I know I can buy this apartment and it's you know let's say rents currently a thousand dollars but if I did this this and this then the rent should be twelve fifty well that provides me my margin of safety yep. right I know I can buy this building the rents should be twelve fifty they're a thousand dollars for some reason that I've identified. And I have a business plan for why I'm going to turn those rents into 1250. That's going to pay me higher cash flow. And lately, higher cash flow is is worth more, substantially more. Substantially. Uh, yeah, substantially more because cash flow is so hard to find. And uh, that's going to increase the value of my asset. That gives me a little bit of a hedge in in case. Let's say I buy that asset. You know, the rents of the building are dollars they should be 1250 uh, but then we run into economic challenges I still executed on my business plan I took the rents to what they were should have been 1250 but rents in the market fell back to a thousand dollars well I'm okay because I bought this asset right I bought this asset with a business plan to improve it and while it didn't necessarily improve the value or the cash flow if the market moves against me, it insulates me from a drop, from a decline, rather than paying full price for a building that's already rented for twelve fifty. If I pay full price for a building that's already rented for twelve fifty and rents go to a thousand dollars, well, now I'm in trouble. Now I'm in trouble because I had no margin of safety. I was, I was speculating that mm-hmm. rents were gonna were gonna rise in the future, and I don't like investing that way. A lot of people do, but I don't like investing that way. Why isn't this taught in college? In, I, we have substantially different views on, on colleges, I think, but just based on past discussions. But my frustration continues to be that skills 
like this as it relates to you know handling personal finances, but also a lot of these things, a, a lot of skills that unrelated to this conversation about how to um, build business or or be good in a in a larger business as an employee are totally neglected in college. But you know, for for this conversation here, none of these things are taught in universities, and I think it's a dramatic failing of our system. Yeah, you know why? Um, you know why I think it's not? I think because I think because the the, the common path uh, and most of the money that funds the colleges, the, the their endowments and things of that sort, uh, are funded by companies, right? And so it's the purpose of schooling is to prepare you for a job, right? If you need a job, you don't necessarily need to understand how to make money in real estate or in investing or in anything like that. You need to understand uh, maybe how to run a discounted cash flow model for the company that is investing in real estate or whatever. And so they teach you how to run a discounted cash flow model, but that doesn't necessarily mean they teach you how to make money. I would love and it if schools even taught that. I... A discounted cash flow model? Yeah. Come on. Well, I have a degree in finance. Maybe that's why. In I guess my undergrad degree wasn't in finance. And I took, you know, oddly enough, the education I got at ASU from a finance perspective was okay if you're looking at, at corporate finance type functions. But as somebody that has spent a lot of time in the past few years uh, doing hiring, hiring of both undergrads and hiring out of, out of business schools, um, the business schools still do a decent job with that. But I also think the business schools have a little bit of an unfair advantage because they're taking people that have had four, five, six years of work experience. So people have learned a lot of these skills on the job and the business mm -hmm. school maybe just helps refine it or you know, really all it does is take you through cases. Um, but mm -hmm. undergraduate wise, the quality of, of skill that I saw coming into the workforce has deteriorated dramatically. And I, I've told the story before, but I, I know of, undergraduate um, undergraduate business degrees. You know, guys that are coming out of very prestigious undergraduate institutions coming out of the business program, and they don't know what Excel is. They never touched it in school. What? This is one of those times I'm going to say picks or it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it, it does happen. And it's, our schools are not doing a good job preparing technical skills and and i don't know why that is because because we're certainly not doing the soft skills very well either um and and i'm just i'm really concerned about the future of of higher education in this country it's college to me is is only going to be valuable if you can replace or increase training that you get on the job if it doesn't do that then i'm not sure i'm not sure how it how it holds value. Does, it, does that make sense? That argument I'm making? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so yeah, so it, it was for me, um, I think some of the tragedy though in, in it is, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that think I go to school, uh, I leave school, I get an amazing job and that's supposed to, that's supposed to carry me forward. But I, I think there's, there's an, there, what, what could come out of, of college or schooling in general 
best is your ability to teach yourself, especially with as quick as everything is changing around us. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. AI, robotics, cryptocurrencies, like, you know, the, the, the internet, we could not, we could not have gone through this pandemic even 10 years ago, the way we have, where mm. everything that we do, you know, we can have meetings on Zoom online. Like, I'm not even sure that was a thing. Um, maybe, obviously, we could send emails back and forth so we could, we could do a little bit of work from home. But at this point, like, I'm, I'm not sure I'm hampered at all uh, working from home through this. Uh, in fact, I feel a bit more effective uh, working from home than than even going into the going into the office yeah. uh, just because I've got, I'm by myself and I, I I probably work better when I'm able to think and not get distracted well and you're free from me all day too which has to help <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wasn't going to go there yeah, but I have this conversation with my wife a lot you know we're constantly debating on you know, our kids are very young. Your, your kids are certainly older. This is a much more relevant, relevant thought thing for them. But, um, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, get good grades, study hard, you know, try, try to get into a good school and you're going to be set. And one, the economy's changed. Obviously, we, we have, you know, 15-year-old billionaires running around, um, maybe, but close to it. But you know, the question is, are there better ways than college for kids to be educated. I, I think it's probably a very individual thing. Some kids, yes. Some kids maybe need a little bit of that structure at college, but I'm not sure it it's the same as it used to be. It's certainly evolving. Yeah, yeah. In any case, I mean, I'm 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 a I'm a believer. I'm an I'm an advocate of of college still. It's getting ridiculously expensive, but I'm an advocate of college still. Um, um, I, I guess I think. Where I would agree, though, is it's really how much can you educate yourself afterwards? Um, because there's so much information that they just can't capture. Um, you know, one of our many, many listeners uh, reached out to me this week. I was very honored by that. One, one, of, one of the millions. One of the millions. And uh, millions. <laughs> reached reached out to me on Twitter uh, uh, after listening and. And and asked with a little bit of shock, uh, you own how many companies? Uh, and 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 one thing one thing that I think they certainly don't teach, teach in college that I didn't learn in school was just how that world works of putting a deal together and raising money through investors and you know it, it doesn't take money to make money but you have to be the type of person that people would invest in. Mm -hmm. And so how do you become the type of person that people would invest in? Well, you don't just go to college to get a job. You go to college to learn, and then you educate yourself on where's the world going. What's a more effective way to do, you know, this, this thing or that thing, uh, you know, uh, becoming, becoming a person that somebody would invest in, I think is, is probably vastly more important than then um then going to college that doesn't mean that college doesn't have value i i truly think it does i i just think that most of the successful people i know 
have educated themselves in a specific way to where somebody would invest in them. I'm thinking about, you know, our, our um, meeting uh, yesterday morning that you were referencing earlier and just the people that were on that call and they, they each invest very different ways. You know, you, you and I were on the call and, you know, you and I invest in private companies and real estate. Uh, you know, we invest in, in, you invest in markets. I speculate a little bit in the markets. I invest a little bit in the markets. Uh, uh, one of the other guys, he actually invests in uh, his, his time and money into building digital assets. Uh, you know, meaning uh, websites and things of that sort. He's an expert at SEO and, um, you know, he's also a personal finance uh, believer, uh, 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 an advocate. And, uh, you know, another guy, he's a real estate developer. He doesn't trust the markets, uh, you know, with a 10-foot pole. Um, And then there's another guy uh, in in that group that, that, uh, works uh, for a, a large uh, real estate holding company, and uh, you know, you know, uh, allocates huge, huge amounts of capital uh, to deals. But each of those people have educated themselves in specific ways that have gone beyond just going to college, that have gone beyond just their formal education, and have invested. In themselves in in developing their own opinions about the world and how it's changing um you know one of the things that i really admire about uh you know our friend who you'll know who i'm talking about chris is the the real estate developer is he's he's a very creative minded uh person that sees the world and culture changing in a certain way and then positions his real estate developments in a way to take advantage of those, of those things. He's invested time, not just in his education, not just in his financial education, not just in the real estate market, but in culture itself. And I think a, a lot of, a lot of folks out there, uh, uh, in, including uh, the, uh, the very kind listener who reached out to me in trying to understand, uh, you know, how many, how many companies I'm involved in. Uh, would be really well served to um, uh, to to find those ways where where you are really investing in 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 your education uh, again not just formally but informally in the things that you love yeah and you know talking about a real estate developer friend it's funny I've known him since I was sixteen years old and he has he has always been been like that with an in a very unique ability one one that i envy to be very creative um while also being very i don't know if technical is the right word but you know there's the black and white side of the business but then the creative side as well i'm not a creative guy and i've always envied him but he is he's always been that way and that that's such a great combination to have but one thing that sticks out you know like i said when i met him i was a 16 year old freshman at at arizona state why the hell my parents let me go to school to college in air at arizona state when i was 16 is beyond me that someone should probably call cps but 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> here you go. go. Go have fun. You can barely drive a car. Go for it. Um, you know, I, I just remember to him, it was, ne- you know, he was, he was, he was older than me at the time. Um, but he was always a guy. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I go to class. I do this. I, I do the work, but it was never about the class. He was always pursuing knowledge outside right. thing, you know, wh- whether it was, um, we, you know, with, with clothing lines or with real estate ideas, whatever it is, you know, always an idea guy, but his education was not about the classroom. His education was by doing and researching and, and constantly pursuing. And my biggest dream for people is that whatever you're doing, whether you're working an hourly job that, that you hate or whether you're an executive, you know, doing, doing something, wh- whatever end of the spectrum you're on, that you always have that hunger to try to learn something new and that we never allow ourselves to get caught up in the trap of thinking that, that our existence has to be limited to the existence we're living right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, that sort of, that sort of ties in with my point about, you know, all these stimulus packages and how there's really a catch 22 with it. Uh, you know, the same thing is we seem to be culturally, we seem to be way more open to these stimulus packages uh, this time around in 2020 than we were in 2008. I remember everybody was not everybody. A lot of people were up in arms about yeah, let just fail. the debasement of the currency, you know, socialization of the risk, uh, you know, while they took the individual individual uh, uh, profits uh, along the way. Uh, th- th- that's not even a catch-22 I'm referring to. We seem to be open to it because because we don't want asset prices to fall. Uh, and, and that's right. But, but we also, we don't want our economy to grind, grind to a halt. Uh, and then that's right. But the, the real catch 22 for me is, is that these stimulus packages, really, they steal from savers. People who are prudent that didn't borrow a bunch of money, they steal from those people and give to the people that are are really that are that are taking the risks um and and so that that's why i think it's really important that we don't just blindly follow along with these things but we educate ourselves with what does the world look like when the u.s government creates you know 5.8 trillion dollars over the last month in new uh quote unquote it's not even they're not even calling stimulus but new bailout packages called bailout packages uh, and and the and the true number is undefined because some of those actually the caps were lifted off of those there's 5.8 trillion dollars i'm not arguing what should or shouldn't be done i'm arguing this is what what it has been done and in light of that what do we think happens what do we think happens we need to educate ourselves around these things you know last time around i thought all that massive money creation would create huge inflation. Well, it didn't really create broad inflation. It, it created, you know, maybe some asset price bubbles, maybe some bond bubbles, you know, things of that sort. Uh, it didn't create broad-based inflation. Uh, and so I don't expect that it will this time either. Uh, but those, those column rewards of that stimulus uh, favor, favor certain certain folks and you know right now there's weird stuff going on in the high yield debt markets 
And if you're not familiar, the high yield debt markets are basically junk bonds, mean, meaning they're not investment grade. They might lose money, uh, but they they earn a, a high yield. And 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 a lot of the pension funds need uh, these higher yields and have been buyers of these junk bonds for a really long time, at least the last you know over the last cycle. And and it really creates this situation where it's the, the I think I think the the, the buying of the high yield bonds is really a backdoor bailout of the pensions. Oh, definitely. Right. Because definitely. they're, Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, and, and so, and then, and then you have guys like, uh, who was it? Howard, Howard Marks that, ju- that just decided he was going to launch a new high yield debt fund himself. Howard Marks you know? is a smart guy. By the way, Amazon just reported, uh, they beat, it, they, they beat revenue by 2 billion, 75 or 73, but their earnings per share $5 versus a 625 estimate. The stock is down five and a half percent. Woohoo. Woo. Yeah. They used to like them, right? I still they do. They got a lot of cash. I still do. They've always had earnings that way though, right? They're, they're, they plow money back in. The oh, they plow money back in like crazy. I'm sure right now with, with this infrastructure stuff, they're plowing it back in, but. I'm okay with Amazon. My my basis on Amazon's thirteen hundred. So I'm, oh, nice. Yeah, that was that one. I'm okay with. Um, but to, to your earlier point, just about about the difference in attitudes, where in you know in '08 it was let them fail, let them fail. You know, big banks are evil. You know, let the car companies fail. All that. Um, and the difference in appetite for this now, obviously, the the government um the government component of being able to tell businesses they can't operate, I think, certainly changes people's appetite. But I also think it's spurred by the fact that for a lot of people, whether you were somebody that lost a home, whether you, you saw your business struggle in the slowdown, a lot of people, it's still recent enough to remember what 08 and 09 were like. And I think that there's certainly more appetite to avoid something like that, e- even though, as we've argued on this, that you know the change in our world as a result of this is probably less financial crisis and more like a 9-11 type thing. Um, you know, the people still remember the economic impact of, of 08, and it's just it's recent enough that that they don't want to go back to it. So I think that's probably why the appetite is is a little bit changed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially, and it seems like it seems like it's less concentrated, right? So last time it very much looked like, oh, we're bailing out the banks. Yeah, uh, and we needed to do that. Uh, at least I don't know what else we would have done, uh, but. Maybe we didn't need to do that. I don't know. I just randomly said that. Nonetheless, that's the way it looked before. This time, it looks like we're we're you know we've got stimulus checks going to the people. We've got small business plans going to small businesses. We've got um, you know money going to support the high yield debt markets. We've got money going to the municipal bonds uh, markets. We've got. Uh, 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 you know, money going to to um, to bail out you know just about every corner of our of our country and and world, and so uh, you might be right about that. That that that's why they're we're much more open to it. Uh, you know, I don't know. I I don't know that um, that I necessarily agree with the the statement about this not being uh, as bad as the financial crisis. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm Oh no, I'm not saying it wasn't as bad. I'm just saying it's it's different in the sense that you know, the financial crisis are the the world kept going on, and you know behaviors 
behaviors didn't change as much with the financial crisis as they did with 9-11. 9-11, you know, if you look at TSA and just different things with terrorism in the world, that changed the way our everyday lives went. Financial crisis, we had less money, but we still sort of went about things the same way. Right. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Um, I think things just started to change a little in terms of just where, you know, American dream of, you know, the, the, the nice house and the picket fence. Um, I still don't, we, we never really recovered, um, you know, back to the level of home, home ownership that we achieved before. Uh, but who knows? We may not actually get there. I, I, I just think I'm, I'm actually, I thought you were, you, I, I'm actually very concerned about, about where we are with this one, you know, mostly with, with today's, uh, you know, jobless claims report, we're, we're up to 30 million, 30 million jobless claims. Yeah. There's no way that doesn't hit point. all corners of the kind of, even Amazon, a company I like, um, no, I, I like it because I like the, the, the financials and the cash flow. but that aside, it's, Amazon surely got to be hit because there's just going to be less disposable income. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm most concerned about is we open up from here and then what, what does disposable income look like? You know, how many people are employed? Uh, you know, what does that look like? How do we get all these people reemployed? Uh, you know, last week it was, uh, you know, it was a 11 years of job growth that we had lost. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it is this week, uh, with three and a half million more, but, um, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I think, I think the point that you brought up about education is really important. I think it's really important that we educate ourselves. Yeah. And is no matter how much money you're paying to an institution, you can't treat it as their job to educate you. You, you got to educate yourself. That's and frankly, right. there's been no better time in history to be able to educate yourself. It can, you know, we talked about this. We get overwhelmed because there are so many books to read. There's so many blogs to read. There's so many YouTube videos on things. To read. It can be very, very overwhelming if, you're not, if you don't have some semblance of discipline about it. But there's still no excuse for not knowing these things and not taking the initiative. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think as you pursue that, you figure out what is it that I love? What is it that I'm that I'm that I'm really into that I can because I think it's that obsession of of what it what it is I can dive into and get into that flow state where you lose yourself mm. and 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 become become that that's what that's what turns you into an expert in a certain area uh, uh, to where uh, you you know something more than others do because you love it you. You, you, you understand, you can understand it better and then you can act on that better. Um, no matter, no matter what that is. I was talking to a guy yesterday. Uh, I've got a little cargo trailer I'm trying to sell. And this guy called me up about it. And he was telling me, it was really interesting. He was telling me about his son who just loved building these custom motorcycles and and he he knows these custom motorcycles inside and out and and builds them up and sells them. He builds one motorcycle a year. And the guy's making a couple hundred grand a year building motorcycles, doing what he loves because he's become a real expert. And that expertise, that love has created a name for himself in this micro niche industry uh, that he's involved in. 
But I think it's things like that uh, over time that are that are really going to set that are really going to set us apart uh, individually as we build our careers, as we build our businesses. As, you know, well, there's we a struggle between depth and career. breadth, in the sense that you know it's we have so much information available to us that it can be very easy to to be you know a mile wide and an inch deep versus going deeper and truly mastering a topic. And I'm not sure the right. answer is necessarily one or the other, but it's very easy to start pursuing a lot of different things and never becoming much of a master in one of them. Yeah. You know, I think, I think with, with as much information as there is out there in the various different weird niche things, I always know when, when I should probably stop consuming content when I can't find any deeper knowledge into this certain area that I'm digging into, I probably have reached the end of it. So I now need to begin begin becoming a producer of content, not just a consumer of content. That's interesting. Both to help myself become more knowledgeable and to add to the treasury, if you will, of knowledge that's out there in the world if i get to the end of it and i still desire more and i still find more and i share that with others i become a part of that that makes sense yeah with with the whole covid thing though in the state i don't think it's very easy to go down these rabbit holes though there are days it'll be it'll be one o'clock and i'll start researching something and it's it's like four forty five. Where, where the heck did this go? Yeah, it's so easy to get down those those rabbit holes. Is it something yeah. I did want to to talk to you about. You bought fake silver. I think I did. I think I did. So, so we we may have talked about this uh, last time or the time before about um, just my my philosophy of, you know, identifying risks and figuring out how to hedge against it. So, so, you know, the risks that I looked at were, were what, what, what do banking holidays look at, look like, and then what do market closures look like? And in the U S longest banking holiday was, was only about a week, not a huge amount of time. The longest uh, market closure uh, was four months. And so I decided that what I want to do um, is not it is to have four months worth of living expenses because I'm like most investors, you know, you live on the cash flow from from your assets. And if I can't sell those assets, you know, I, I need to have an emergency fund somewhere. Right. And so I decided I'm gonna put cash, gold, silver, bitcoin into my emergency fund. Uh in my quote unquote safe, right? It's Bitcoin clearly doesn't know my safe, but you know, there's a, there's a, a, a key. We would have wallet. lost all credibility if you didn't clarify that you can't put Bitcoin in your safe. Ah, yeah. But there's a key for my wallet and that key might be in my safe. So there's that. Uh, nonetheless. Um, uh, so years ago, uh, I had bought like a few silver coins and this is right around the time that there were all those rumors about, being fake and uh, most recently i added to that stash pretty considerably because of my most recent research and uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm looking at, it's become, it's become a point where it's a, it's a considerable amount of money that I haven't invested at this point. It wasn't before, but it is now. And so I wanted to figure out how do I know if my gold or silver is real? And so like we were, like we were talking about earlier, I began educating myself and I found out there's a number of ways that you can do, do this. One of the easiest ways for an individual to do it is with what's called a specific gravity test. And uh, you need a, a really sensitive scale uh, you weigh the coin dry and then you weigh it in water uh, suspended. Uh, and then you compare those two things and you can actually get the specific gravity in, in each gold, silver, all sorts of things. They, they have their own specific gravity within relative tolerance. And that's the best way to know, uh, at least for a, you know, average Joe like me to figure it out. There's also these sound tests that you can do. And um, so I, I, so I pulled some of my out and I'm, I'm doing the sound test and I'm hearing the, the bell, the ting. And it's, it's a really long running bell that you can, you can hear. And it sounds, you know, just like the, 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 the one that I was re uh, researching. And then I pulled out the old ones that I bought and it's clonk. Oh boy. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think these things are fake. So I don't know for sure, but I think they might be. I think they might be fake. So you have ordered your own scale. Yeah, I've ordered scale. Yeah. I'd I'd like to see a video well, of how this goes down. Uh well you can search it. Just search uh gold and silver specific gravity test. So I'd like to see a video of you doing this. Oh, okay. I'll I'll give you a video of me doing it. It's uh uh but again, I mean I just do stuff like that. I get into something, I start educating myself about it, I figure out, you know, what what's the information I need to know. And then what's what's funny is then I start having friends about it and they think I'm an expert. And and I I think it's funny because I just watched a few YouTube videos and, and, and figured out what are all these other guys doing? You know, so accumulating the knowledge that's there, that's out there in the ether, uh, you know, to the point which you know, you actually are doing the same things that, that the experts are doing. And uh, so anyway. You're so, a yeah, renaissance I, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, have you uh been following Elon Musk the last few days? No, not really. You mentioned him earlier. He's got some rather strong opinions about uh the reaction to COVID and about Silicon Valley. He uh yes not Elon Musk. No, no. You know it's funny. <laughs> he's another guy where I, I don't know whether to love him or hate him. I mean, he's he's probably insane, but he's obviously brilliant. And so sure. it's kind of, kind, of, kind of tough to get a read on him, but mm -hmm. um, I guess he issued a message to uh, politicians stating that we need to free America now. Uh, he referred to uh, the policies for COVID as fascist. Um, he wants to, quote, give people their freedom back and then said, bravo, Texas. Um, but then he had some rather strong things to say about Silicon Valley. He tweeted, Silicon Valley has become sanctimonious valley too much the moral arbiter of the world what do you think of that i don't know uh a gen I, I would say I, I i can sort of understand what he's saying i also i'm from silicon valley so i'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little yes, bit... you are a morgan hill guy that is true i grew up south of san jose uh 
uh, so on the uh, on the outskirts with the cows. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I mean, I can hear what he's saying I, for sure. I can, I can hear what he's saying, uh, but I, I mean, I hesitate a little bit. I I just I struggle. I go back and forth with this whole pandemic thing. Um, on 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 one hand, this is this is a really it's a coronavirus, which is the flu. So one of our friends posted in in uh, a Slack channel that we've got a group of folks in about you know the decline in the flu and 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 while we've all been stay at home and I didn't say this uh, just because I don't I didn't care to argue but I'm pretty sure those numbers should be added together that he had the percentage of people with coronavirus and the percentage of of cases of the flu because a, from I think. From what I understand, a coronavirus is a, fe- a flu. Now, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but a coronavirus is a, is a flu, I believe. It's a respiratory flu. And um, But, okay, so that said, it's either an incredibly bad flu in the sense that this is overblown, it's just an incredibly bad flu, or it's an incredibly bad flu in the sense that this is a ridiculously bad flu. And if you look at the charts of cases, the thing that I struggle with is you can see the case count clearly, clearly, um, uh, you know, kind of go parabolic. And then as we began social distancing, begin to flatten out. Now, it hasn't really declined all that much. Uh, it started to in certain places, but but nationally, it's it's sort of lingering. It seems like if social distancing is working, it shouldn't just flatline, but begin to actually decline. Uh, and and what I fear is that you open back up and we start to go parabolic again, uh, because no matter how I no matter how I run the numbers, even if you say only only you know they they, they say that only only fifteen percent of the people that get this actually have any symptoms in places where they've tested it. Well, if, if that's the case, uh, I don't know what the case count number is uh, today off the top of my head. Uh, let's see. In the United States, looks like earlier this morning, it was a million cases. That's what I thought. So if it's a million cases, and if that's 15%, um, then there's only, there's only 6.7 million people in the country that have had it. Herd, herd immunity won't kick in for until what do they say 60% of the population has it so we could potentially still you see what I'm, you see where I'm going with this if there's a million known cases but we only know of 15% of the cases because the other you know 85% don't actually manifest any symptoms that would mean there's only 67 6.7 million people that have had it this could get this could get 10x we also don't know, though, if if most people don't even show symptoms, we have no idea how many people have it and don't show symptoms. Well, that's 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 pretty known, though, because of the isolated cases where, like, there was that uh, that cruise ship um, uh, that they had. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's an encapsulated uh, uh, story. There, there's been random samplings. There was a local doctor here that's random sampled uh, uh, about a week ago. 
my friend's doctor was telling me he's he's sampled every one of his uh, his clients, uh, uh, and that's two hundred thirty six clients. Uh, two two hundred over two hundred of them. Well, let's say it this way: thirty four of them have actually come back as they have or have had it. Uh, so it's about fifteen percent, uh, and only one of those actually showed uh, showed any symptoms. Uh, so, so that would, that would, that would, those, so those numbers sort of jive a little bit. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not, but then I vacillate back and forth because uh, this is going to sound really cold, but even, even with, with, you know, 70,000, um, uh, or 64,000 deaths in the U S uh, through today, um, that's like, again, that that's a that's a really bad flu season only yeah. april it's only april so maybe that doubles maybe that triples um well when does the flu really, season really really bad end? Flu, season. flu season typically I ends right around summer right uh well i think it's an annual number yeah but it's yeah but it, the actual impact of it still is i think front loaded i guess depending on how you look at the calendar uh, you could be right. Yeah, you could be right. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to think about any of this stuff. This is just what goes through my head. Well, the other thing I, all that to I'm say, I vacillate back and forth. So much. Uh, I'll say so much. This is a complex thing to have to make a true argument about because it affects so many people so different. The right. fact that you can have this natural symptoms and and all this, and you know, you get, you know, some some people are on on ventilators or respirators and some people are walking around like you know like they're having bad allergies it's that's that's a bizarre thing in of itself you also look at the age impact of this and the question is well okay you know we're, we're seeing a lot of covid deaths in certain age groups well would those groups have if not covid probably been susceptible to something else you know there's there there's that argument as well what i'm curious your thoughts on are how you uh, equate that to the, the things you're seeing out of Sweden right now, who isolated their most most vulnerable portions of the population. They didn't shut down schools. They didn't shut down restaurants. They said, hey, you know, do, do your best to keep apart. And it was widely predicted that they were going to do everything short of eradicating their population. And they're seeing numbers that are fairly consistent with what we did here. Yeah, I mean, I so... I hear that it, it'll, I think it'll be easier to tell after the fact. Um, and, and it's, it's really unknown right now because they're behind us. Like their case count didn't start picking up uh, until, until April where, you know, our first cases were a couple months prior. So it'll, it'll be hard to see what they, what they do have, what they do have right now uh, when I was looking at it yesterday, they have a higher death per, per population um, uh, in Sweden. You know, it's just, it, it's just hard to know. And then, and then you never know if, if it's actually a good comparison. So they've got 244 deaths per million population. We're sitting at 180. So did we save, you know, 64 people per million uh, by going this route? You know, I, I I just don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I I wrestle with this. I go back and forth, and I think 
you know, there's a, there's a part of me that thinks maybe does our government know more than we do? Well, usually, uh, uh, doesn't mean I trust them. I'm American. We don't trust our government. Uh, but nonetheless, but doing does our government 200 and some years? Yeah. Do they know this was, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but that this, this came, this came out of that lab and do they know what this actually does and looks like, uh, maybe, uh, you know, have they, but, but then, but then there's a part of me that says, did, did, uh, my politicians just save millions of lives? Well, that story reads really well politically. Um, it's, it's really easy to, you know, toot your horn for something you can't prove. That's Um, why politically it had to go this way. Yeah. It it was the lowest risk thing, which, which really, really sucks because we, we, we don't know. We'll never, ever be able to say that the measures taken were justified or unjustified. I think we may know, especially with Sweden going the way they are, if we can get some, some decent testing, you might have some comparison numbers, uh, but, but clearly with, with both sides of the political aisle committed to this being you know, a very serious thing, we'll, we'll, anyone that questions that is going to be relegated to some sort of conspiracy theorist, yeah. I think. The, the thing that, that Elon said that I do very much agree with, though, is uh, just his criticism of, of Silicon Valley. And as a guy that talks a lot about leadership, it, you, it's something you and I very deeply care about, especially with, with, the, with the companies we're involved in. I, I have a hard time when it comes to leadership we see out of Silicon Valley. And, and let me caveat that by saying what it takes to start a successful software company uh, you know, thinking the likes of Facebook, Uber, things like that. The qualities that it takes to to do that are generally in direct opposition to the qualities it takes to successfully lead uh, a more traditional um, uh, or more legacy oriented company. You know, it's, what what it takes to be good in a software company. You could never take and run Coke or McDonald's or Boeing, even for that matter. Um, they they are dramatically different because so much of the way the business model in Silicon Valley works goes back to VC dollars creating the hype machine. You know, how else can we have companies valued at fifty billion dollars that are not making a profit? You know, it's right. it's about hype, and and there are certain people. You know, we've been seeing this ever since we were in grade school. There are certain people that are more predisposed to becoming popular, uh, to selling themselves, and and there are plenty of people. Uh, I would say I'm definitely on the end of the spectrum that I'm not wired that way. But you know, I struggle with with Silicon Valley you know, being this, this place, and I'm making generalizations here, so it's probably unfair, but a place that gives us lectures about what's right and wrong all the time. When a lot of people running some of their most well-known companies are some of the worst people on the planet from a leadership and an interpersonal perspective. There, there's definitely a miss there. And the fact that it takes somebody um, like Elon Musk, who one, is part of that system, uh, but two, c- certainly has some, o- some of his own idiosyncrasies, we'll say, to point that out, I think is, is tragic that, that a, a lot of us that are outside of that world haven't been, been more vocal about it sooner. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about 
tech and venture capital in general is those those companies create these first mover advantage network effects and and they have to grow so fast they have to outrun a bullet mm-hmm. you know you only expect one out of 10 venture investments to work but when it does you expect it to do 10x plus because it's got to make up for the rest of your portfolio and um only in tech can you actually grow that fast uh where that's even a possibility in a traditional brick and mortar business like we run you can't you can't actually grow that fast safely and 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 not go off the rails and so so anyway the reason i say the reason i say that you have to grow that fast you have to create this this uh, what was the what was the phrase you just used? The 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 hype, right? You have to create the hype in the VC world. Um, I think that that lends itself to sociopaths flourishing in that environment in a certain respect. Um, you know, the, the the guy from WeWork comes to mind. She's um, almighty. Uh, Hell, hell I hate to say, I hate to say it. Some, I mean, some probably guy, me. personally. Steve Jobs comes to mind. Okay, sure. And 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 not to, I don't I don't know these guys personally, and so I hope this isn't offensive. But some some of the things in the way they've been portrayed, uh, um, if they're even remotely accurate, are 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 just inappropriate. They they lend themselves to the criticism that I think. Uh, Elon Musk is 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 referencing, uh, but you know, no, you know, it's interesting. I was I was talking to a friend uh, earlier in the week um, who who runs a small venture capital fund, and um, he was actually talking about you know their their investments are doing great through this, but uh, because they um, they have a unique strategy where you know it's critical uh, their products that their companies produce are, are critical to uh, uh, their companies. And he, he did that for safety really, but it's, it's become uh, very important. But he was, he was saying that the, the, a lot of the venture capital world, you know, their funds uh, are getting toward the end of their life should be harvesting gains, aren't harvesting gains. Uh, now you have this COVID thing uh, that's leading to several write-offs that's leading to delayed, recognition of gains and receiving their capital back which is going to lead to delay in that capital being redeployed reinvested so there i mean it could be very damaging to the um uh you know to silicon valley this whole thing that we're going through right now because that capital doesn't get recycled and keep that that machine running that that when you're when you're investing for a gain there's no cash flows. When there's no cash flows, there's no reinvestment. When there's no reinvestment, there's no future gains. Yeah, Airbnb comes to mind. You know, that was you know on, on tap to be a very, very significant IPO. It's certainly Silicon Valley darling, and I'm guessing their investors are probably in a hard spot right now because that, that company's been around for a long time. It's probably going to be hit asymmetrically hard, or at least harder than than other Silicon Valley companies because of COVID. So that's Right. That's that's certainly something that that will mud up that cycle, so to speak. But 
I think these are things that people forget is markets are volatile. Sure. And when they're not volatile, it leads to complacency. And bad habits and bad yeah. decision making. Right. All, all and then and then you and then you bail out a phase and that compounds the problem. You start it again and the problem's bigger. Right? Yeah. And so we bailed out, you know, long term capital management for billions. Uh, then we bailed out uh, uh, you know, the the banks during the housing market for hundreds of billions. And now we're bailing out everybody for trillions. <laughs> We've compounded the problem for oh 30 gosh. years. We're going to get to zillions soon. You know, I, I'm just seeing Apple reported here. And one of the things that that I like about Jobs, and I'm very critical of Jobs as leader. Now, don't get me wrong. He, he's a genius, and he created, out of his own mind, products that I rely on daily, including my MacBook, whose screen stopped working this morning. Um, <laughs> but something he did that I always admired was choosing his successor to be somebody that was basically the polar opposite of him. And that was Tim Cook. And you, know, you, you look at so many of these software companies, there has to be a transition at some point to, to somebody that is, is a, better, a better leader, so to speak, or, or a more traditional leader. And he did a very good job identifying that. So kudos to him. Oh. All right. I think we've uh, beat these topics up about as well as we can today. All right. Good. All right. We will be back next week. You can find us on the interwebs. He is, uh, are you Tim Barrett or Timothy Barrett DM on Twitter? Tim Barrett DM on Twitter. That's probably the best one. Okay. And then I'm Timothy Barrett on Instagram. And Tim Barrett on LinkedIn. So you have three completely different vernaculars. You know, I, I was never trying to be a social media superstar. <laughs> but now that that's changed, I might have to clean that up. There you go. All right, I'm Chris Book on LinkedIn, uh, Mr. Chris Book on Instagram, and occasionally I angry tweet under uh, Chris Book on Twitter. So give us a buzz <laughs> if you have any questions. Love to hear from you. Otherwise, we'll check in with you guys next week. All right, thanks.